following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know Him and make Him known. It's great to be with you, as always. And um, I was thinking, uh, leading up into this message this week, about uh, high school and I was, I played some sports. I was not a great athlete by any means, but I did play basketball. I loved basketball and I loved baseball. And I've said, you know, the, what held me back from a baseball career was the fact that I couldn't hit, couldn't throw, couldn't run. Uh, basketball was something like that. I, I enjoyed basketball, but I couldn't dribble and run at the same time. Uh, I, I had no defensive skills whatsoever. I couldn't shoot. And on top of that, I could not for the life of me figure out the place. To this day, I don't know what a backdoor trap is. And maybe some of you old, old timers can tell me that. But I did go to every game. I, I played through my sophomore year. Then I, I dropped sports in favor of music. And I went to every game, which might have something to do with one of the cheerleaders. I won't mention the name. Um, but my senior year, my senior year, our basketball team was awful. We were 1-20 in the regular season, only because there was a team that I think, they, they could have only had one or two players, right? Be, because we shouldn't have won. So we're 1-20, one and, one and, and going into the postseason, now, the postseason back then, Illinois was one class. Everybody's thrown into it, right? So our first game in regionals, we draw LaSalle, Peru. We're a school of 140 kids or something like that. And we draw LaSalle, Peru, that's this huge school, and they're ranked fifth in the state. So we're thinking, this is a David and Goliath moment, Right? This is going to be, man, we're, you know, Walnut High School is going to put themselves on the map, go out there and beat this. Uh, it didn't quite work that way. It was 20 to nothing before we scored, and that probably took 30 seconds. And when Walnut scored, the entire gym stood up and cheered. I mean, it was just absolutely crazy. But, you know, we love David and Goliath stories, don't we? We love these stories where, where the underdog, you know, the total underdog comes up and knocks off the big guy. And, and that's, a, that's a cool thing, you know. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and we have grown up with this idea of David and Goliath. But do we really understand the story of David and Goliath? We understand it from, from uh, you know, <laughs> I read someone who said uh, that most of us grew up on learning about David and Goliath from flannel graph. How many of you remember? All right. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to dig into David and Goliath a little bit this morning. So if you would turn your, in your Bibles, and I hope you have a Bible, 
um, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, I'm not going to get into David's previous life a lot, but David's been anointed as the king, but he kind of runs back and forth, and that's something that's kind of important, but he's not always with uh, King Saul, uh, but he's here now in, in this story, and, uh, and an amazing story it is. We're going to kind of walk through it and then put some application to it at the end. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war. And, and I'm not going to run through all of these names and stuff, but it says Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. Now, you've got to understand, the Philistines were kind of a thorn in the side of the Israelites, uh, they had been at, at kind of nipping at each other's heels for a long time. The Philistines had, get, had settled out on the coast in what's now Palestine, and they kept trying to inch their way eastward because they wanted to take over the plains around Bethlehem and so on because it, it was a major commerce route for them. And, and so they, they keep coming further, and finally... It's time. It's time for a, for a war. So King Saul assembles his army and brings them out to meet the Philistines. This is where it gets really cool. In the passage, the armies of the Philistines and the Israelites are basically at a stalemate. Now, the Valley of Elah runs east and west. It kind of runs, it's this major route. So here's the, the Israelites on the north side and the Palestinians, I mean the uh, Philistines on the other side, and they're both on hillsides. It says that um, the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. Now, anybody who knows anything about warfare, if you know any history, you know the, the coveted place on a battlefield is what? The high ground. The high ground. Uh, read the history of Gettysburg. And you read how that battle ended very poorly for the Confederacy because they tried to attack the high ground. Well, now you've got two armies. Both of them have the high ground. So for either army to attack the other means coming down the hill, across the valley, and up the hill to attack. It's suicidal. So this just goes on and on and on. And nobody moves. And war gets pretty boring after a while if nobody's fighting. So it says that a champion named Goliath, in verse 4, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, which is only probably five miles from this battlefield, came out of the Philistine camp. Now, we all know about Goliath, don't we? We all know that he's a giant, uh, among men, at least. We don't know for sure what the interpretation of these weights and measures are. He, Goliath was anywhere from six foot nine to nine foot six, somewhere in that range. Now, the average person at that age, at the, in those times, it's probably about five feet. So you imagine 
this guy who's, who towers over everybody else. And he comes out. And what he's doing is something that was very commonly known in that era. What was, re- it's called various things, representative warfare. Um, anyway, each army was to choose one person. And they'd come out and fight to the death. And whichever one won, their army was the victor. That's the way it's supposed to work. But Goliath would come out day after day after day after day and shout at the Israelites to send someone out. But everybody's scared to death of this guy. He's a monster. He's huge. He's got probably 200, somewhere around 200, 250 pounds of armor alone on him. And he's got the weaponry. So nobody wants to come out to meet him. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Man, he is the mighty. He is the mighty one. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Israel, "Why why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day, this day, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. A mark of a leader is courage. You cannot lead without courage. No military leader alive or ever alive could lead without courage. And here we see Saul has lost his. Saul has lost that edge. Now we get David. David was the son of an Ephetite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem and Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab. If you remember when when, uh, David was anointed, Eliab was one, everybody's choice, man. Big and strong and handsome and should have been the king. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. David never lost sight of what he was called to do. At this particular time, he was back and forth between Saul and tending sheep. He didn't abandon his father. He didn't abandon the sheep. 
But for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and every morning and evening took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephra of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Now we're set. We're set for the story to truly unfold. Early in the morning, David leaves the flock and, and loads up and, and sets out. And as Jesse had directed, he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions. Imagine every single day, every single day, they go out, they line up. Okay, what are we going to do today? Up, oh, line up. Everybody line up. And this guy's going to come out and shout at us, and we're all going to tremble in our boots, and then we'll go back. And tomorrow, same old, same old. But as they're going out, Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him with great fear. David, David becomes incensed by this. We're going to see in a couple minutes about David that one of the things David has is this sense of a presence of God in his life. And David can't understand how Saul, the king, the leader, can abandon the task. You know the story from here on. David called out by Goliath. David goes to Saul and says, let me, let me, let me go, let me go. And Saul says, you're just a kid. You're just a ruddy shepherd boy. David says, I can do it. I can do it. David has a confidence. He says, I can do it. Saul says, no, you can't do it. Yes, I can do it. No, I, you can't do it. Yes, I can. And finally, Saul just gives up. Out of exasperation, Saul says, fine. You want to go? Go. But take my armor. And he puts on Saul's armor, and it just weighs way too much. He said, no, let me go. Just let me go as I want. David goes down to the river. There's a little creek that runs through the valley of Elah. And he goes down to that creek and he gathers up stones and he puts them in his pouch. Okay? Saul finally says to David, go and the Lord be with you. And then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. Saul says, David says, I can't go in these things. And I look down at about verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that it was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. Goliath 
wanted a fight. Wanted a fair fight. <laughs> I can imagine what a fifth-ranked team in the state of Illinois thought when they came out and saw our basketball team out there and thought, this is no fight. But David comes out. Am I a dog, Goliath says, that you come at me with sticks and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the feet. This really is... uh, Tasty stuff right before lunch. Um, And the whole world will know there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you all into my hands. And we know the rest of the story. I want to jump ahead just a tad bit here. There are several applications. There are several ways to apply this story. And we are commonly, you know, it's ingrained in our culture, the David and Goliath thing, where it's the, 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 the weakling, the underdog, that's taking on someone far more powerful, far more uh, capable. And, and that's how we see this story. And that's not a bad application. It really isn't. But there are other ways to look at this story. And I want us to see what led to Goliath's demise, and there are, there are several things here, uh, five takeaways. And the first takeaway is simply this. Never underestimate your opponent. Never underestimate your opponent. Goliath did. He underestimated David. He sees this, this shepherd kid coming out, and he says, no way. No way. I've got the armor I've got, the, I've got the size advantage. I've got a weight advantage. I've got a weapon advantage. He's just got this little sling. When Goliath saw him, what did it say? He laughed at him. He despised him. He mocked him. Never, ever in battles, never, ever in our lives, in, in, in our spiritual battles, never underestimate our opponent. I'm not saying we should walk around looking for the devil under every rock. But let's not underestimate him. Because he's real. What's John say about the devil? Jesus said, for he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. You think he wants any less of us right now? Never underestimate our opponent. Goliath did. The second thing Goliath was guilty of was simply this. Never (laughs) overestimate your own strength. 
Never overestimate your strength. We often in the church, we Christians often like to try to go off on our own and do things in our own strength and in our own power. And that is when we fall into trouble. When we lose touch with, with the God of the universe, when we, when we say, God, you know what? I got this one. I got this one. And we're in trouble when we do that. We overestimate our own strength. And we're not that strong. We're not that good. We're not that brave. David comes out, this little guy, and Goliath is this massive force and just shakes his head. I got this one. The third and this is where we focus on David. Always be prepared for the fight. Always be prepared for the fight. Do you think David had ever practiced with a sling before that day? Or he just saw it and picked it up and said, ah, I'll just go out and use this sling. Slinging, as it is called, is a very, it requires a great deal of skill to do it well. And, and it's remarkable what slingers can do. You know, we think of slinging, we think of the story of David and Goliath. How many times have you seen it drawn up with, you know, a young shepherd boy with this little forked slingshot? That's nothing like this. Nothing like this. The sling was a leather pouch that you whipped around and you knew just how to let it go at the right time. And here's some amazing stuff that, <laughs> that, that skilled slingers, listen to this, skilled slingers are able to hit a target 200 yards out. Skilled slingers are able to pick off a bird in flight. They have contests in, in uh, Ireland, I think it is, where, where they can hit any target they can see. They can hit a coin as long as they can see it. Can you imagine how far out that is. David was prepared skillfully. He had practiced. He had worked hard. He had learned how to use a sling to protect the animals the sheep that he watched over. And along with that, David had prepared physically. I guarantee you, David said he was ruddy and handsome. Being a shepherd was hard work. <laughs> I always love a story a friend of mine used to say, tell me, um, because he traveled extensively in Israel a few times. And at one point, he had a, a guide who was not a Christian, and, but he knew the area. 
And my friend said to him one day, I want to walk today. I want to walk the such and such road, and I don't know which road it was. And the guy says, what do you mean you want to walk that road? He says, I want to walk that road. The guy says, you don't want to walk that road. My friend, yes, I do, because the Bible says that Jesus walked that road. And this guy who's not a Christian said, well, then your Jesus was quite a guy. David, I think, was quite a guy. He was prepared physically. He was prepared with his skills. But he's also prepared spiritually. When everybody else was backing away, when everybody else was was afraid of Goliath and the Philistines, David saw the bigger picture. He saw that it wasn't about him versus Goliath. It was about his God versus Goliath. I think that is one of the most important lessons out of this. That we have got to see that the battles we face in this world, in our lives, whether it's day-to-day things or, or massive things that we might fight, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about our God. The battle truly does belong to the Lord. And we have to be able, we have to have these visionary eyesight where we can see what God sees. And understand that if God is in it, God will win it. David was prepared for the fight. Always, always be prepared for the fight. We have to always, next point, have to always expect the unexpected. Always expect the unexpected. Goliath went out, and what was Goliath expecting in the fight? What was he expecting? He was expecting somebody just like him, only a lot littler, to come out with their armor and their spear and everything else, and those guys would duke it out. Just normal warfare. That's the way they did it. And here comes this shepherd boy with a sling. Now, David instead comes running at him, whipping this sling. Now, good slingers can get that thing going five or six revolutions per second. And when they let it go, it can go with a velocity far above what any major league baseball pitcher can throw a baseball. I like the way Malcolm Gladwell says, just imagine you're going to stand in front of a major league baseball pitcher and let him throw a baseball at your forehead. 
Only instead of a baseball, how about a little rock? And that's exactly what happened. David, now you think about this. Goliath is massive, but the only place that was exposed was right here. Every other part of his body was covered with armor. And David comes running at him, whipping this thing, and, he, and, and scientists have studied this and done you know, comparisons and so on. And, and a stone thrown from 35 meters away will embed itself deeply enough in the skull to kill. This wasn't just some accident. David was good. David was good. Goliath was not expecting what David brought to the game. Goliath, it's thought that Goliath may have had one second to respond from the time David lets go. One second. Finally, and and this is so important. This is really, I want to make sure we understand this. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. That's what this story is pointing us to. That's what every word in the Bible points us to, is Jesus. I like what one scholar wrote. The story is less about overcoming giants than about seeing situations from God's perspective and acting in faith on that belief. We see as God sees. We believe in our hearts that God is in this and we act upon it. And despite David's flaws, and we see they are plenty as his story unfolds, David is still a man after God's own heart. In a way, David functions as a, 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 almost a type of Christ, of the future anointed one, Jesus, who will save Israel in an unexpected way. Nobody expected David to do what he did. Nobody else was going to do what David did. David came out. Nobody expected Jesus to come the way Jesus came. Nobody expected Jesus to do what Jesus did. We can look at the story of David and Goliath on many levels. And all the applications hold water, but only one tells that real story. David points us to the one who will come and redeem his people, who will defend and save his people, who will stand alone in the arena, Jesus Christ. But then, you know what? Every single page of that book you hold in your hand points to Jesus Christ. Every story points to Jesus Christ. Every word points to Jesus Christ. I came across this years ago, and I think it's so good. In my younger days, I had it memorized. In Genesis, in Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. 
In Leviticus, he's the atoning blood sacrifice for our sins. In Numbers, he's the smitten rock, the brazen serpent who became sin for us and was judged. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet likened unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, he's the great deliverer. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In Kings, he is the promised king. In Ezra, he is the restorer of the nation. In Nehemiah, he's the restorer of the temple. In Esther, he is the advocate, the propitiator. In Job, he is our daysman. In Psalms, he is our all in all. In Proverbs, he's our pattern. In Ecclesiastes, he is our goal. And in the Song of Solomon, he is our bridegroom, the bright morning star, the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. In Isaiah, he's the miraculous one born of a virgin. In Jeremiah, he is the Lord, our righteousness. In Lamentations, he is our consoler in the midst of chastening. In Ezekiel, he's the true shepherd. In Daniel, he's the ancient of days, the stone cut without hands. In Hosea, he's the faithful, loving husband. In Joel, he's the judge calling all nations. In Amos, he is the champion of social justice. In Obadiah, he's the wrath and favor in the day of the Lord. In Jonah, he's the missionary to all men. In Micah, he is the Messiah as God-man. In Nahum, he is the God of vengeance. In Habakkuk, he's the God of justice, providing salvation through faith. In Zephaniah, he's the judge who sets up the kingdom of righteousness as Messiah. In Haggai, he's the restorer of the temple. In Zechariah, he's the angel of Jehovah, the branch of David. In Malachi, he's the messenger of the covenant. In Matthew, he's the king of Israel. In Mark, he is the servant of Jehovah. In Luke, he is the son of man. In John, he is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In Acts, he is the risen Lord. In Romans, he is the justifier of sinners. In 1 Corinthians, he's the risen coming Lord. In 2 Corinthians, he's our all-sufficient grace. In Galatians, he is alone our salvation. In Ephesians, he's the head of his body, the church. In Philippians, he is our life, our pattern, our goal, and our strength. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among every nation. In 1 Timothy, he is the true shepherd and bishop of our soul. In 2 Timothy, he's the righteous judge soon to appear. In Titus, he is the true elder. In Philemon, he is the settler of accounts. In Hebrews, He's the eternal sacrifice and the eternal priest. In James, he is the Shekinah glory of God. In 1 Peter, he's the chief cornerstone, elect and precious. In 2 Peter, he's the returning Lord, not willing that any should perish. In 1 John, he is the Almighty who became a man. In 2 John, he is the truth. In 3 John, he is the strength and supply for the missionary. In Jude, he is the one who can keep us from falling and present us before the presence in his glory and ascending in exceeding joy. And finally, and finally, and finally, in Revelation, he is the coming King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. All right. Give God a hand. Lord, thank you, man. Thank you, God. That uh, Just to see you in every page of your word is... is, is it sometimes is almost beyond us. We can't quite wrap our our hands, our brains around it. And yet there you are. In the story of, uh, that is, is so familiar to us that we sometimes, uh, we sometimes pass it off as being simple and, and without the power that it, it deserves. But to see you 
in that story to gain precious practical insights and yet at the same time be drawn to the greatness and the majesty of who you are and how you have you have been here in our lives in in the life of our church in in the lives of all we are and who we are every single moment of eternity Father, for that we praise you. And we praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, who indeed is the true and only redeemer, the one who gave his life that we might live. Father, let each one in this room, let that sink in. And if there's even one person in this room this morning who has not by faith reached out their hand in desperation, said, for God, save me. Let this be the moment. Let this be the moment. And then let them have the courage to talk to one of us as pastors or our elders, anyone. And we would be more than happy, Father, to help them know you. Because that's what this church is about. It's what we are about. Thank you, God, for who you are. We praise you, give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.